This week's sponsor is absolutely perfect for true crime fans, especially those of us that love a twisty, turny murder mystery. June's Journey is a game set in the Roaring Twenties. June's sister Claire and her husband Harry were found dead, and June is certain that they've been murdered. Now she must travel to New York, where her sister's estate was, to look after her niece and solve the mystery of Claire's death. You go along the journey with June, searching for hidden objects in different locations from the parlors of New York to the sidewalks of Paris, uncovering hidden clues to solve the mystery as you go. I'm already on chapter six and the mystery has gotten so good. I cannot wait to uncover more clues. I'm also loving how you get to customize your very own luxurious estate island. That's right. Let your imagination run wild as you decorate your island with expansive gardens and beautiful buildings. My pool is literally insane. It has a waterfall. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free on iOS and Android. It was Russell's birthday. Oh. Well, it snowed, and your girl's not doing that. (laughs) She's not driving in the snow. And I feel so bad because I told Russell, I was like, I don't understand how you had a birthday in January living in the Northeast your whole life. This is terrible. And I just like kept going. You can't go anywhere. You can't do anything. It's cold, blah, blah. He's like, oh, it's like my birthday. And I'm like, well, you shouldn't. It sucks. Welcome to another episode of True Crime Creepers, where we talk about all the real-life creeps, from serial killers to con artists. I'm Kristen, the true crime fanatic who loves to tell these stories. And I'm Mogap, the true crime newbie who hasn't heard any of them. Hey, no murder this week. Oh. Yeah. (laughs) Wait, I love that. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's the least you could do. This is still not a great story, but <laughs> oh no! But I'm actually really excited to tell it. Uh, Mogab, we got a Patreon. We do. We've had a Patreon. We've had a Patreon. We're running on our fifth month because we just dropped our fifth bonus episode, and we did the true story behind the movie Alpha Dog with uh, Justin Timberlake, Emile Hirsch. True story behind that movie. So if you would like to listen to that or any of our other bonus episodes, you can join for five dollars to get access to the bonus episodes. Two more dollars, seven dollars. That'll get you access to all our mini creeps. We just recorded one before this episode where we played the game Red Flags, where we took two wonderful things about somebody, (laughs) added a red flag, and decided if we would still date that person. (laughs) (laughs) And let me tell you, the bar's on the floor. (laughs) If you want the bar's on the floor. If you want that kind of content in your life, you know, sign up for the Patreon. $10 will get you 20% off of merch, and you can sign up at – oh, you also get a sticker and a card with our signed names. (laughs) Those are called autographs. (laughs) You get that at the $7 level also. And then $10 gets you 20% off merch. So go check that out at patreon.com slash truecrimecreepers. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around stressors, big and small. For me, this comes in the form of work, too many deadlines, relationships with people, irrational fears of the future. When we keep them bottled up, it can really start to affect us negatively, mentally and physically. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. 
My therapist has really been helping me work on coping skills for how to handle my stress, how to handle day-to-day tasks that I struggle with, as well as working on communicating and improving personal relationships and just talking through problems with somebody who understands. It's something I wish I'd started ages ago. But finding a therapist is so overwhelming. Are they taking new patients? Are they taking insurance? And once you find one that says yes to both of those, are they a good fit? If not, you have to start the process all over again. If they are a good fit, you've got to figure out some way to fit appointments into your busy schedule. But BetterHelp takes away all of those barriers, and I'm so thankful. I love my therapist. I really feel like they took my questionnaire that I filled out when I signed up and really used it to match me to the perfect person. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Creepers today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Creepers. Okay, this is a true story, and this is kind of a, a wild one. I know I Aren't say that all the time. these all true stories? <laughs> all but one. Oh. <laughs> How dare you bring that back up to me? How dare you? <laughs> Is that a pay? No, that's a regular episode. That's yeah. Last, that was last week's regular It'll, episode. Yep. Yep. Tanya head. Mm. <laughs> and look, everybody, she forgave me. <laughs> yep. Nope. Okay. So on our Patreon for our bonus episodes, I've been doing this series of like the real story behind movies based on a true crime. Yes. And so this episode tonight, it was originally going to be a Patreon episode because this is the true story behind the movie Lucky which was based on the memoir by Alice Siebold. Lovely Bones. Same author, yes. Only the movie was never actually finished, and it was actually the making of the movie that uncovered the real truth behind this crime. But if it was a memoir, doesn't it mean it happened to her? Uh Uh-huh. Okay, this is very interesting and very Mm -hmm. timely because Mm -hmm. this weekend I – I used to read all of the time. I've been compiling my reading list. And so I'll see like a book recommended online and I'll screenshot it or someone will send me a recommendation. I'll just like jot it down a note in my phone or I'll text it to myself. I have like umpteen amounts. And I was like, this weekend I am condensing this all into like one note in my phone. So I compiled all of my books. I have like 108 on my reading list. Oh my God. And I feel like this might be one of them. Why don't you just get so a good read account? Check that off. Uh, I've tried that, and I started using it for a while. Maybe I will go back to that. I don't know. Yeah. So since there was never actually a movie about this, I decided to do it for our regular episode, and I'm really excited because this is such a cool story. And the story actually broke, like, just a couple of months ago, like, November of 2021. And I think – gosh, it was yesterday. Yes. A TikTok about it, like, had popped up. Back in November, and I started diving into it almost right away because it's such a good story. But I'm actually glad I waited a little bit to do this episode because my best source at the time when I was doing this like a week after like the hearing and everything, my best source was from the Daily Mail. So (laughs) when I went back to like, see, you know what I could do with this episode, uh, the New York Times had done a pretty good like more in depth article on it. So I want to thank all the people for their article in the New York Times that we will link. There's several articles linked, but Alice Siebold is probably most well known for her 2002 book that you shouted at me, The Lovely Bones. Okay, because I finally knew it. And now you're like, (laughs) it's the most well known. (laughs) 
cool. It's, well, it, no, she's most well-known for that book. Like, Walt Disney is most well-known for his creation, Mickey Mouse. <laughs> That's how I felt. <laughs> that book was about a girl who's raped and murdered, and she watches from her personal heaven as her family and friends struggle to move on from her death. But several years before she wrote that book, in 1999, Alice wrote a memoir called Lucky, which chronicled an experience she had when she was 18. Oh, no. It was 1981. Alice Siebold was 18 years old and finishing up her freshman year at Syracuse University. On May 8th, 1981, she was walking home through Thorndon Park near her campus. It was really early in the morning, and she was the only one around. A man with a knife grabbed her from behind covered her mouth, and told her that he would kill her if she screamed. She screamed anyway, and a struggle ensued. She tried to fight back, but he beat her, then he dragged her by her hair to a tunnel. She was terrified, but she made sure to notice as much about his appearance as she could. She took note of his small but muscular build, the way he gestured his eyes and lips. She begged him not to rape her, telling him that she was a virgin, and he did anyway. (gasps) She was terrified that he was going to kill her. Eventually, she decided that her best course of action, the one most likely to get her out of this alive, was to just do whatever he wanted. She kept apologizing to him, even when he was just hurling insults at her. After he raped her, he acted really nice to her. He told her that she looked cold and gave her her clothes back to put on and asked her if she was okay. And that gave her hope that she would get out of this. But then, like a sudden flip of a switch, his tone changed and he became angry. He told her that she was going to get pregnant, as if he'd just realized that that was a possibility here, and asked what she was going to do about it. Oh, Lord. At first, Alice didn't understand what he was asking her. But then she realized that this could be his reason to kill her. If she got pregnant, that would be evidence. No baby if she's dead. But Alice was a quick thinker, and she came up with a plan. She needed him to believe that she didn't want anyone to know about this just as much as he didn't. So she put on this act that if anyone found out about this, she would be in tons of trouble. She begged him not to tell anyone and told him that her family would be so mad at her if they knew and please just don't say anything. And Ah. if I get an, like she said, if she got pregnant, she'd have an abortion. She just kept saying, please don't tell anyone. And he kind of laughed like, oh, yeah, all right. I won't tell. I won't tell. You know, like it worked. She tried her best to just look relieved and not terrified. She thanked him and asked him if she could leave. He told her to kiss him goodbye like this was a date. Ew. I know. And then he said no murder, but like, honestly. (laughs) I know. And then he started crying. He told her he was sorry. And she told him that she forgave him, which seemed to cheer him up. But then he stole all the cash out of her purse, which was a whole $8. He told her to take care of herself, and then he ran off in the opposite direction from where she was going. She headed back to her dorm room. Her face was bruised, cut, and torn. Her hair was matted and tangled with leaves. Her clothes were all bloodied. She asked the security assistant at the dorm to call the police. And when they arrived, paramedics strapped her to a gurney, surrounded by gawkers. A policeman announced to them, get out of the way. This girl's just been raped. (gasps) Yeah. Oh, my God. Welcome to the 80s. (laughs) Exactly. At the hospital, they were able to do a rape kit, which meant invasively examining every inch of her body for evidence. And they found plenty. 
Skin under her fingernails, hair, blood, semen from her attacker, all collected. Today, that would have been a slam dunk if you could find someone to test it against. But in 1981, you know, DNA testing was in its earliest stages. It's like, why are we even doing those kits then? They're so terrible after something like that. I mean, it's good that she went, but. I don't know. I've been wondering that too. My assumption has always been that they foresaw the technology advancing enough that Mm -hmm. it would make it useful. And at the time, they thought they could compare those things too, you know, so. Mm -hmm. The police came to the hospital to get a statement from Alice, and they told her that in that exact spot, a young woman had recently been murdered and dismembered. (gasps) Why would they say that? They told her she was lucky. And we talked about this last week in our Tanya Head 9-11 story, but, like, we've got to stop telling victims of crimes that they were lucky that they weren't killed. Like, I get the message, like, yes, it's good you're alive, but she wasn't lucky. I'm sure she felt pretty dead inside. Yeah. Months went by with no leads. Alice was having a lot of trouble knowing that her rapist was still out there. Until one day, she saw him. (gasps) She was walking down Marshall Street in Syracuse, which is an area popular with the college kids in town that's full of restaurants and shops. Ahead of her up the street, Alice saw a black man talking to a white guy in an alleyway. She could only see the black man from the back, but she could see that he was the right height, right build, and that there was just something about his posture that seemed familiar. Her gut told her to cross the street away from him, and she did, without looking back, and she ducked into a little shop. When she came out of the shop, she saw the man again walking diagonally across the street toward her. The man smiled at her and said, Hey girl, don't I know you from somewhere? (sighs) She couldn't speak. She looked directly at him and knew his face was the face of her rapist. She was certain. The man walked off and she ran to a building on campus where she placed a collect call to her parents to tell them that she'd just seen her rapist. So they did know. She must have told them what happened to her. Yeah. Ah. Yeah, I think she was just making all of that up. Like, she wanted him to think that... Oh, yeah, I knew that was. I just, you know, I didn't know if she shared that, what happened. Well, yeah, I think because she made the report, so... Yeah. Yeah. She ran to her dorm room and made a sketch. She'd written out details of what he looked like, and so she drew him with notes about what he had been wearing. Syracuse police arrived, and she told them what she'd seen and showed them her sketches. Based on all of this, the police arrested a man named Anthony Broadwater. Later in her memoir, Alice would give him the moniker of Gregory Madison. Anthony James Broadwater was a 22-year-old Marine who'd been born in Syracuse, the fourth of six boys. When Anthony was five, he and his brother Wade had gone into the living room to find his mother dead on the couch from pneumonia. They lived near Syracuse University for a while because his father was a janitor there, but Anthony said he always felt like the campus was off-limits to him and other young black locals, so he rarely went there. Instead, he'd hang out at the local rec center or... Boys and Girls Club. Even though Anthony, who went by Tony, lived in a neighborhood that was heavily patrolled by police, he'd never been accused of anything serious before in his life. He was on the wrestling team in high school, and when he was 17, a recruiter with the Marine Corps came to his high school and convinced him to enlist. Tony said he wanted to see the world and try to better himself, so he dropped out of high school and joined the Marines. I just keep thinking of Big Tony Bastoni. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and his 
Sidekick Joseph Maglioni. Maglioni. <laughs> I'm never going to not think that. Of was that from our, uh, was that <laughs> Michael guy's? Malloy. Michael Malloy. That's such a good one. Ah, it was a good one. If you haven't checked it out, go check it out. <laughs> Finish this one first. All right. Anthony was stationed at 29 Palms in Camp Pendleton in California until he ended up with a cyst on his wrist and he was discharged from the Marines. He got disability for the injury and went back to New York, where he got a job installing phones for a telecommunications company. He'd also gone back to help out his dad, who had stomach cancer. It wasn't long after that that he was arrested for the rape of Alice Siebold. Hmm. They called Alice in to see if she could identify Tony in a lineup. She had a really hard time at the lineup deciding between two men, numbers four and five, and she ended up picking the wrong man. It's really important to note here that Alice is white and her rapist was black. Witness identification is so unreliable as it is to the point that the Innocence Project has recommended doing lineups in like a double blind manner where the administrator of the lineup doesn't even know which person is the suspect and the witness Mm -hmm. isn't assured that the suspect is even in the lineup at all. Which would definitely help, but when you add identification across races, it makes witness identification even less reliable. There have been dozens of studies done into cross-racial identification, and every time this is studied, the results are very clear. People are much more accurate when identifying unknown people from their own race. Mm -hmm. This is true of all races, but it is particularly true of white people who were unable to recognize black races more often than any other race. Right. The man Alice picked out of the lineup was standing next to Anthony, and she said the two looked like identical twins. Moments after she made her choice, she says she felt like she picked the wrong man. Mm. Afterwards, there was a debrief with Alice, the officers, and the prosecutor, and Alice was frustrated. She knew she'd picked the wrong man, but numbers four and five had looked so much alike to her, she couldn't tell which was the one who had raped her. According to her memoir, the prosecutor told her that the man she chose was a friend of Anthony's and that Anthony had purposely had him come down and stand next to him to trick her. Why can they do that? Why can Anthony do that? That's a very good question. Like, the (laughs) suspects are just allowed to create their own lineups. Also, if you get put in jail, don't call me to come stand next to you because I got brown hair because I'm not doing it. No. The prosecutor told him that they use each other all the time in lineups to trick people into choosing the wrong person because they're dead ringers for each other. The prosecutor said that the person that did not commit the crime, so they're just going around these two guys just committing crimes all over the place. And when they get picked up, they'll call in the other guy and say, hey, I'm picked up. Come volunteer for a lineup. I don't know how that works. So then the other guy comes. And then... The guy that didn't commit the crime will look really scary. He'll like make really scary faces at the two-way mirror and making it more likely that they'll be chosen over the other guy. And they're just doing this all the time with each other. I mean, that is sounds like a cartoon. <laughs> that sounds like Tom and Jerry. <laughs> I'm annoyed. Yeah. It's, yeah. No, it sounds like a totally true story. <laughs> Despite Alice picking the wrong person out of the lineup, Anthony was arrested and charged with eight felony counts, including rape and sodomy. He was indicted by a grand jury and went to trial in Syracuse in May of 1982, almost exactly one year after the attack. 
He pled not guilty to the rape and continued to say that he was innocent. He had not done this. Syracuse, New York is a city of only 170,000 people, and the county didn't even have a public defender's office. Instead, they had like volunteers in private practice that would work for a small hourly rate as public defenders. Anthony's attorney was Steve Paquette. He'd been an attorney for two years, and he was still very idealistic about criminal defense work. (sighs) Paquette said that Anthony had total faith in the justice system. He just knew that once the facts were out, they'd see that he didn't do this and it would all work out. Paquette said that Anthony was very eager to cooperate with the district attorney's office. Whatever they needed, he was willing to do. Anytime they needed to talk, he made sure he was available. And he never wavered on his story. They got the wrong guy. Where was he at when this took place then? Well, he didn't have an alibi for that night. He was home alone with Mm. no one to corroborate that alibi. Paquette talked Anthony into taking a bench trial, which meant that he would waive his rights to a jury trial and all of the evidence and witnesses would be seen only by the judge who would then determine the verdict. It's sometimes a good idea to consider a bench trial, especially if you think there's going to be like a lot of bias against you for whatever reason, or if Mm -hmm. the road to not guilty is paved with technicalities in the law. You want someone very familiar with, with those laws and committed to upholding them, you know? I don't really Mm -hmm. know why they decided to go with a bench trial with this case. I'm not really sure of the reasoning there. Maybe because it was a black man who was being, you know. I was just about to ask that. Like, do you think? Yeah. Yeah, but, you know, I don't know. I don't know a lot about Syracuse, New York. I actually, I should have maybe looked into this. I didn't think about it until right now. But I just don't think of New York as being a particularly, like, I mean, Syracuse is kind of secluded. Yeah. You know, I mean, but, yeah. I, but I don't know the 80s either, but still, I just Ooh. wonder if they felt like yeah. that was the best option. Yeah, I don't know. That's the only thing that would make sense to me if he was worried about, you know, the racist issues. Yeah. The judge assigned to Anthony's case, Walter T. Gorman, had a reputation for being a fair judge and thinking through all the evidence that came before him. And Paquette thought they stood a chance with him. The prosecutor in this trial was William Mastine, who'd been handed the case a week before the trial, and based on the evidence he had, he fully believed that Anthony was the guy. Mastine was quoted in the Times article saying that he always loved being in the courtroom. He said it wasn't a rush, just a satisfaction that what you're doing is right. Side note, 10 years later, Mastine would be disbarred after pleading guilty to defrauding a client. So, Oh, <laughs> hmm. That doesn't age well. <laughs> quote. I think that I think he said that quote today, like when they reached out <laughs> to him in today time. And they're like, oh. but what about that time that you were disbarred? <laughs> Yikes, yeah. The trial began on May 17th, 1982, and by far the most important testimony at this trial was Alice Siebold's. And on the stand, she was clear, she was calm, and she was direct. She knew that Anthony was the person who had raped her. She was asked to identify the man who had attacked her. She pointed to the man sitting behind the defendant's table, the only black man in the entire courtroom. Anthony I also don't understand that that practice. I, I've seen that. Mm-hmm. Like point to the person. It's like mm-hmm. they're obviously not gonna the one on trial. change their mind now. Yeah. What about the third row in the back? Will you stand up? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What if that happened? Oh, I'm going to see if I can find a case where that happened. 
<laughs> I totally He's agree. He's been here I, the whole time. Yeah. The real Slim Shady, please stand up. And yeah, and I think there's a problem with that considering how like prejudicial that would be. Like that's the guy that did it. He's sitting right there, you know? <sighs> yeah. What are we doing, y'all? The prosecutor asked Alice if there was any doubt in her mind that the person she saw on Marshall Street that day was the person who'd attacked her in Thorndon Park. And Alice said, no doubt whatsoever. But like maybe a little bit or no? She had no doubt in her mind. During her testimony, according to her memoir, she was given a short break and the judge came to see her and they chatted a bit about her family. Once she'd collected herself, she went back on the stand. She was sweaty and shaky by the end of her testimony, but she was proud of herself, especially after a bailiff told her that in his 30 years on the job, she was the best rape witness he'd ever seen on the stand. What a weird What a weird compliment. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so at this point, I guess, oh, never mind. This is still the 80s. I'm like, why aren't we testing the kit against this guy? Yeah. You know? Yeah. and Blood and semen, like. I'll go into a little bit about what they did test. But is, he a a <laughs> is he a secretor? <laughs> Anthony was the only witness to testify for the defense. During his testimony, he told his version of the events of that day Alice said she saw him on Marshall Street. Alice had testified that as he'd walked by her, he'd said, hey, girl, don't I know you? But Anthony said he hadn't been talking to her. He hadn't even noticed her. He'd seen a police officer on the street that he remembered from when he was younger And it was him he'd been talking to. He didn't say, hey, girl. He just said, hey, don't I know you? He also discussed a few unique facial features he had, like a scar under his chin and a chipped tooth, details that Alice never gave in her description of her attacker. The Times article said he was the only witness to testify for the defense, but another article I read previously said that the police officer that he was talking to also testified on Anthony's behalf, that it was him that he'd been talking to. So I'm I'm not totally sure. I did not read like all of the trial transcripts for this. And I know that the Times people did. So I don't know if they just missed that or if, I don't know. The trial only lasted two days. And because DNA analysis wasn't available at the time, the only other evidence against Anthony was an expert testifying about a hair found on Alice. They'd plucked a pubic hair from Anthony and done a microscopic hair analysis of the two hairs. Oh, and they sound so painful. I know. And they found that they matched on all 17 points of comparison that they used for the hair, according to Alice's memoir, because that was actually not in trial documents. During this test, they're looking for specific characteristics of the hair. And because the hairs on your head are not identical, they're looking for consistency in some of those characteristics that include things like color, treatment, pigment, and form. Let me see if you can figure out the problem in doing a microscopic hair analysis of two pubic hairs from two black men. Yeah, I think they're pretty similar, yeah. Yeah, I think they're pretty similar. (laughs) (laughs) I think they're pretty similar. (laughs) I didn't know that the hairs on your head weren't identical. No, yeah. I mean, uh, well, they're like different colors, different shades, different lengths, different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They could even be different textures. Some of my hair curls better than other curls, you know. Well, yeah, now I got all these gray hairs. <laughs> but right. I mean, I guess I just never thought about it like that. You yeah. Know? Mm-hmm. These tests are now considered complete junk science for reasons so obvious I can't believe an actual adult never brought these issues up before the year 2000. 
These tests were used in trials for more than 20 years. And in 2015, the Justice Department and the FBI formally acknowledged that nearly every examiner in the FBI laboratory's microscopic hair comparison unit, because that's a thing, every examiner in that unit gave flawed testimony in almost every single trial they gave evidence for. I am not shocked now that we have a candy tampering expert, okay? (laughs) All right, but sure. that is yeah. crazy that that's a unit of the FBI. Yeah, and especially now that we no know more. that it's like totally junk. Basically, all of these people that testified, they all made it seem like these forensic matches were a lot more conclusive than they are. Like, yeah, this hair is very consistent with this hair. And that means that it's probable that he did it when really that hair, millions of people have males. similar hair. You have big yes. hair. And you cannot tell that that hair came from that person's head definitively without DNA. And the devastation of this is that those flawed testimonies resulted in who knows how many wrongful convictions. Yeah. In closing arguments, the prosecutor really focused on the fact that Alice had been a virgin, as if that somehow makes this whole thing worse. It's Yeah, it's not worse. But as soon as you said that, I was like, oh. Yeah, I know. But rape is rape. Immediately after closing, the judge said that he was ready to rule. He didn't even take a few minutes to look over the evidence before making his ruling, which was based almost entirely on the hair analysis testimony and the positive ID from Alice in the courtroom. Despite the fact that Alice had misidentified him in the lineup, he determined that Anthony Broadwater was guilty of rape in the first degree and sentenced him to 16 years in prison. He gave no explanation for his decision, and that was that. Anthony Broadwater was taken into custody and went on to serve his 16-year sentence. (gasps) 16 years? Mm Mm-hmm. During that time, he got his GED, he studied the law, and he repeatedly tried to get his case reviewed. He even sent $1,000 to Johnny Cochran, hoping, like, Johnny Cochran would Mm -hmm. help him out. But his money was returned with a note saying that his law firm doesn't handle post-conviction relief. Anthony's dad wanted to help, but he was undergoing chemotherapy because he had stomach cancer. He died the next year in 1983, but he died believing his son was innocent. Anthony was never able to get early release because at every parole hearing, he maintained his innocence. The parole board wants to hear that you're remorseful for what you did, so it's almost impossible for those wrongfully convicted to get parole unless they lie. As the years crept by, he'd see prison yard fights end in fatalities, and he'd wonder if he, too, would die there in prison. He was released in 1999 when he was 38 years old. He was put on the sex offender registry, he had a curfew, and he was prohibited from most workplaces. He tried to find work, but it was really challenging. Being on that registry, you become a social pariah, and he faced years of stigma and isolation. His job prospects were so narrow that he was really only able to find odd jobs here and there. He worked at a metal plating factory. He bagged potatoes. He did yard work and roofing, janitorial gigs. He really liked taking night jobs because he felt like they gave him an alibi, something that he hadn't had when police talked to him about Alice. Oh, that's hard. I know. He'd been home alone. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I'm assuming he... I'm I'm assuming the point of the story here is that he didn't actually rape Alice, but Right, but you don't know so where, far. You don't know where we're going. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He'd been home alone, you know, with no proof of it, much like me here now. That's why we do this every <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
And check in with Zoom all the time. <laughs> Got your Marco Polos. Exactly. He had very few friends. Everyone thought of him as a rapist, and it became easier to just keep to himself. But he continued to reach out to lawyers, hoping to clear his name. Because now it's not just like, even though he's out of prison, it's still like, I am convicted of this, and mm-hmm. I cannot work. Mm-hmm. And I'm innocent. Yep. A year after his release, he met a woman named Elizabeth, and they started dating. And almost immediately, he handed her a whole file with information on his past, telling her that if she was going to be in a relationship with him, she'd need to know what he was going to spend the rest of his life fighting. And she said she would stand behind him while he did, and they got married. Hmm. Elizabeth really wanted to have children, but Anthony refused. He said he would never have a child and bring this kind of shame onto them of having a registered sex offender as a dad. Alice went on to write her memoir about the whole ordeal, Lucky. And two years later, she released the critically acclaimed novel, The Lovely Bones, which became an international bestseller. It was translated into 45 languages. It sold over 5 million copies in the U.S. alone. Later, the film rights were purchased and Peter Jackson directed it. In 2019, almost 40 years since the rape, it was announced that the film rights to Lucky had been purchased. So this is like two, three years ago. So wait, is that movie just strictly about, is there other things in the memoir or was it just about? It was about, it starts with the rape and it goes through like the trial and like her dealing with the rape and the aftermath of it and like the effect it had on her and all of that. Okay. So it was announced that the film rights were purchased in 2019 to Lucky, but it wasn't until this year, 2020, or well, I guess I was writing this in November, so. (laughs) (laughs) So it wasn't until 2021 that it was full steam ahead with the project. In May of 2021, it was announced that Victoria Pedretti, who played Love on the Netflix show You, have you ever watched You? No. She was loving that. She was cast to play Alice and principal photographer. Her name was Love? Yeah, her character's name was Love. Hmm, That's cute. Mm -hmm. She was cast to play Alice and principal photography was set to begin on June 21st, 2021. But then filming hit a little bit of a snag. In January of 2021, so rewind a little bit, Tim, and I don't know how to say this guy's last name, so I'm just going to give it to Whirl. I think it's Italian. Tim Muccianti, and we're going that with that. That very great, minus a little bit of the accent you gave it with the, f- with the finger. Muccianti. <laughs> yeah. Muccianti. <laughs> yeah, that was. Mm-hmm. No, don't do that. Tim Muccianti. <laughs> Muccianti. A ratatouille. A ratatouille. <laughs> A Muccianti. I'm sorry if you're Italian. I apologize. Uh-huh. Yeah, you. I love Italy. <laughs> Tim Muccianti. I thought I used to like French food, but then I realized I just <laughs> like, like La Madeleine. <laughs> sorry to French people. Tim Muccianti was hired to be an executive producer on the film. Tim was a disbarred lawyer who'd done his fair share Mm. of prison time for fraud, like the time he convinced investors to give him money for condoms so he could go to Russia and trade them for chickens, and then he would sell the chickens in Saudi Arabia. But he just ended up keeping all of the money for himself. Wait, what? That is all the information I have about that. (laughs) Sometimes I think you don't get the additional information because you just want to leave it right there. Right there. Yeah, I feel like any additional information would just ruin that. (laughs) 
I know we did our mini creeps on red flags, but that would be a red flag. <laughs> Where are you going? Oh, just to Saudi Arabia, sell some chickens. <laughs> yeah. This episode is sponsored by Pros. Supporting our sponsors really helps support the show. A couple of years ago, I decided it was probably time I figure out some kind of skincare routine. But the problem was, and has always been, too many options. I don't know exactly what I need or what's best for me and my skin. So thus far, my solution has been to just buy a skincare line off the shelf and hope it helps. But that's all about to change when my custom skincare from Pros comes in. Each and every bottle of Pro's custom hair and skincare is made to order and personalized with a unique blend of naturally powerful and proven effective ingredients to meet your needs. In fact, in a third-party, double-blind, dermatologist-supervised, controlled clinical study, aka the gold standard in research studies, Pro's proved that personalization works better than off-the-shelf alternatives. Try it for yourself and get your healthiest hair in 30 days or get your money back. Pros is so confident that you'll love your results that they're offering our listeners an exclusive trial offer so that you can see the difference custom care can make. That's 50% off your first subscription order at pros.com slash creepers. That's P-R-O-S-E dot com slash creepers for your free consultation and 50% off your one-of-a-kind formulas. Pros.com slash creepers. Life doesn't happen bi-weekly, so why should payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today with Earn In. Earn In is an app that gives you access to your pay as you work, up to $100 a day or $750 per pay period. Just download the Earn In app and verify your paycheck, and then access your money as you earn it instead of having to wait for it to hit your account. Any money you access, including any optional tips, are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. It is a much-needed alternative to predatory payday lenders for people that find themselves in a bind, like a bill due Wednesday when payday isn't until Friday. Or you're like me and you're just getting slammed with birthdays. Why are all my friends Tauruses? With Earn In, I don't have to worry about being late with a gift because I had to wait for payday. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in Creepers under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. Creepers under podcast. Subject to your available earnings, location, daily max, and pay period max. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. After he got out of prison for the last time in 2010, he wanted to reform himself. So he went to Hollywood. And he started his own film production company. When he was brought onto the Lucky film, he read Alice's memoir. And then he read the script. And he quickly became really suspicious of the script. He said, quote, The script was very good, but it just didn't track the book as closely as I would have preferred. And that just made me wonder, why is that? Why do we have to gloss over these facets of the book? He also picked up on how little evidence there had been of Anthony's guilt, and he started to become very skeptical. He wasn't the only one with issues about the project. In March, the actor who had signed on to play Anthony Broadwater's character, who was called Gregory Madison in the book and the script, he left the project. He said he decided that he didn't want to be a part of a film that perpetuated the stereotype of black men raping white women, even though that was what happened to Alice. 
And the film's powers that be said, okay, maybe you're right. And they decided to recast the role as to a white person. Oh. Yeah. And Tim said he understood if this was a work of fiction, you might not want to portray that stereotype. Like, that makes sense. But that this was a true story that had happened to somebody, and that was what had happened. And so he kind of pushed back on it. But the powers that be pushed back on him pretty hard. They were adamant that the role was going to be played by a white man. Who wrote the screenplay? That's not written by Alice. No, Alice did not write the screenplay. I'm not sure who was the person that wrote the script. They were just somebody that, like, adapted it. So it's not like Alice wrote it and glossed over parts of the book. No, I think the screenwriter read her book and was like, ooh, so much of this doesn't make sense. I'm just going to, like, ooh, not – we're not going to go here with that. We're going to go here with that. And so – Alarm bells started going off to him, and he started re-examining the memoir of Lucky. He compared it with the police files he'd seen of the case, and his suspicions rose as he read about the case against Anthony Broadwater. I want to be clear here that he was never suspicious of Alice's story. This was a horrific incident that actually happened to Alice, and that is not in dispute at all. What Mm -hmm. was in dispute, however, was the prosecution of Anthony Broadwater. Tim was trained as a lawyer, like I said, and he used to work in a prosecutor's office in Michigan, and he dealt with sex crimes. And the case didn't make any sense after looking at the book critically. He became so uncooperative over this that he ended up being fired from the film. Some reports said that he'd left because of this, but he said, nope, they fired me, and frankly, I was relieved. But side note, in the Times article, they said they had three people from the film tell them that Tim was let go from the project because he'd failed (sighs) to deliver the money that he promised them. But either way, he said he felt so much (sighs) angst. (laughs) He just promised him like $6 million. No big deal. He said he would fully finance the film. Either way, he said he felt so much angst about these issues with the movie, and he couldn't let it go. His biggest concerns were Alice misidentifying Anthony in the police lineup and then pointing straight at him, identifying him at trial, as well as the fact that Anthony Broadwater had only been brought into the investigation after she saw him on the street five months later and became convinced that he was her rapist. So was she identifying the man who raped her or the man she saw on the street? You know, was she, was it possible that she was like, she sees him And suddenly she thinks he's her rapist, and so he's the face that she remembers now because she saw him that day. I never thought about those being two separate people. Like, she identified the person that she saw in the street that Mm -hmm. talked to the police officer she thought was talking to her, Mm -hmm. but that that wasn't the person that raped her. Yeah. Yeah. And again, when you are identifying unknown people across races, especially when it is a white person identifying a black person, you're probably wrong. (laughs) Studies have showed it's the chance, the chances are high for misidentification. Mm -hmm. Tim also discovered that originally the case had been closed by the Syracuse Police Department because they felt like there was no way they could get a description of the assailant. Alice's description to them at the beginning was all over the place. And as much as police departments love to investigate rape and just always put that 100% effort in, you know. They decided this one, they stopped the backlog. (laughs) They decided this one, they really couldn't investigate. I'm sure they were so bummed. Also, that sketch that Alice drew, you know, she went home from market or 
Marshall Street, and she drew that sketch in her dorm room, remember? Yes. It looked nothing like Anthony Broadwater or anyone else in the lineup. I'll post the picture of the lineup so you can decide for yourself. But I think the only thing identical about Anthony and the man she chose was the fact that they were both black and of similar height. I'd say the guy she chose looks more like Kevin Hart than Anthony, but I'll I'll show you the picture. In fact, I'll send it to you right now. Okay, great. Okay, here's what I'm confused about. So she picked the man on the far right, mm-hmm. but they still arrested the guy next to him. Yeah. Why? So how police lineups work is it's not like a row of suspects up there. It's like one suspect and then like random people that fit his same description to see if you can pick out the person. And it's like, if you can't even pick out the person from the lineup, then they should not be put in prison based on your identification of that person. There should be other evidence, you know, right? that that's them. And there wasn't in this case at all. Except for that hair analysis, which is uh, ridiculous. Yes, his pubic hair was similar to another black man's pubic hair. Imagine that. Also, none of these – first of all, these two men do not look similar to me at all. No, I I agree. Um, I don't think they look anything alike. Yeah. And I'm not obviously doubting that this was super traumatic for her. And sounds like she did the best that she could to focus in and try and get a description. I know so often they talk about a victim focusing in on the weapon or what is happening to them and not being able to get a description. Yes. But yeah, this is... It's also interesting they put these two men next to each other when they do not look similar but they are the most similar of all of in them. height and build. Yeah. And, yeah, and all of them. They're like, what would have happened if they would have broken those up? Yeah. I mean, not that it's. Uh, and I mean, either way, neither of them, neither of them did it. So Tim noticed that Alice wrote in her memoir that the man convicted of raping her had a criminal record, which is a lie. Anthony had no criminal record, and he'd never been in a lineup before in his entire life. Tim also wasn't buying her story about the prosecutors telling her that Anthony and the other guy were always in each other's lineups to fool their victims. Like, first of all, prosecutors just don't do that. And even if they did, like, who believes that suspects are allowed to curate their own lineups? And the prosecutors just know this, but continue to put them right next to each other in a lineup? Like, that whole story was obviously ridiculous. You said it seemed like a cartoon. (laughs) Also in the book, Alice wrote that Anthony had ordered a hit on her roommate who was raped two years after she was. And it's horrible that her roommate was also raped, but it's an absolute fabrication that Anthony was behind that rape, too. Yeah, Syracuse, what are we doing about that? We, we get, <laughs> did we do better here? Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it's not. And I don't have an to them. answer to this question. And so I. I think because I don't have an answer to this question, I I know the answer to it. Mm-hmm. That is your answer. Yeah. And that is Alice's rape kit. Like, did they toss it? Did they destroy that after this trial? You know, because if they hadn't, it would be so easy to catch the guy now. They have so much DNA. That guy's DNA is probably in the system. Yeah. Anyways, he said- And that- if not, could we at least rule out- Anthony. Anthony. Right. Tim said there were other portions of the book that were just not reflected in reality, like this whole thing about the hairs matching 17 out of 17 characteristics. 
He said that was never mentioned at trial. He didn't see it in any of the trial transcripts, and he couldn't find it in any of the reports. Not to mention even that many characteristics on hair. I can <laughs> name like three. <laughs> well, I think I named like five earlier, but not 17. Yeah. And I mean, not to mention the whole thing is widely regarded as junk science now anyway. I mean, we don't do hair analysis. Right next to polygraphs. <laughs> right. Then there was the scene in the book where Alice talked about sitting down with the judge one-on-one, right in the middle of her testimony. She took a little break, and the judge went back there with her, and they had a little chat. Tim said that was completely absurd. No trial judge in the world would meet with the victim of the crime alone in the middle of the trial. So it seems against the rules, but I don't know the rules. Right, and I would think that would be tenfold in a bench trial, where you're basically the jury. The jury is not allowed to confer with the victim. Like a private <laughs> meeting. Right. He said he doesn't know if that really happened or not, but if her whole description of the trial is actually true, Tim said it is the craziest trial he's ever heard of. Again, Tim was adamant to say that Alice was raped, and he does not believe that she intentionally identified the wrong person as her rapist, but that in the years since the rape, The facts of the case have been misrepresented or confused. So Tim was fired from production from the movie and funding for the movie dried up pretty soon after, probably because Tim was responsible for the (laughs) the funding of the movie. After Tim was fired, he hired a private investigator named Dan Myers to investigate the case because he just could not let this go. And not only did Dan Myers investigate the case, but he potentially solved it. Oh my goodness. He said he spoke with a detective who was involved in the original investigation who told him that he did not believe the right man had been caught. And not only that, but this detective gave him the name of a suspect who was locked up for committing another sex crime around the same time of Alice's rape. That man now lives in Syracuse and is listed on New York sex offender registry. And he said he thinks it's that guy. That guy's name was obviously not released. They might, hopefully, are investigating this, but there is a statute of limitations on rape. So, Oh, I don't think I knew that. Five years. That's it? You have to solve the rape in five years or they just get away. Yeah. So you mean to tell me that you could literally say, this person raped me, and they would say, yes, I did, but it happened 10 years ago, and that's it? Mm -hmm. Oh, what are we doing here? Yeah, and there is, there is like, things of, like, five years after it's known about. I don't know all of the rules exactly, but it's, like, five years after it was reported. But that's why so many of Harvey Weinstein's victims, like, never got justice because it was way more than five years when they all started speaking out, you know. So they had to get, like, the one person who had been within that time period that they knew of. That is... Yeah. Yeah. So after hearing this, Dan decided to reach out to Anthony and talk to him about it. Dan is the pride investigator. He met with Anthony in front of his house with another private investigator named Curtis Brown, and they talked with Anthony about his experience. Dan and Curtis learned that immediately after getting out of prison, Anthony took a polygraph test and passed it with flying colors. Just like, hey, hook me up. I didn't do this, you know? Mm -hmm. He'd taken another one within the last couple of months, and he'd passed again. He'd always wanted to appeal his conviction, and he and his wife had scrimped and saved their money to hire a lawyer to help him prove his innocence, but 
It was just never enough to get him an, a lawyer good enough to get him an exoneration. And so he mm. just made do. After speaking with him, both Curtis and Dan agreed he was the wrong guy. The biggest thing that stood out to Dan was that Anthony had no criminal history. Looking at the details of the crime, you'd expect someone doing that to have quite the rap sheet and to continue reoffending after they've been released. It's very clear that whoever did that to Alice, it was not their first time. It was almost like they had this whole thing down to a science. And then Anthony has now been out of prison for 20 years and hasn't had a single reoffense. It just doesn't make yeah. sense. Do you believe there are people that can commit a crime one time and that be it? I do because of the Angie Dodge case where that man oh raped and murdered her brutally in her apartment, got away with it for like 20 years and never committed a single other felony because his DNA was on file. And so if he had committed another crime and there had been mm -hmm. DNA evidence, which he was not that smart, so there would have been DNA evidence unless he like went all Dexter with it. Yeah. Then, yeah, he went that whole time without. But I think that's rare. Mm. And I maybe that was the only time he murdered. And... <sighs> You know, rapes are very underreported. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, that doesn't mean he never reoffended. So, because other, otherwise, I would not believe it. No. Hmm. I, I think people that do stuff like this will always be dangerous to society. Rapists, yeah. murderers. So then where does rehabilitation come into that? Is that only for like minors, you feel? I definitely feel like there are gray areas in there. If you're brutally raping and, and stabbing a woman to death in her apartment. Mm. Well, yeah. But I think with like gang stuff, gang murders and things like that, that aren't, again, breaking into somebody's apartment, raping and murdering them violently. It's like that kind of violence that's like perpetuated by group think. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's room for but what do i know who am i like you know they're literally the host of the podcast <laughs> <laughs> i am for rehabilitation in cases where it's possible but um mm -hmm. yeah. serial rape like rapist no you're trash no, no we don't yeah we hate you. <laughs> we hate we you here. so much and you're trash you can kick rocks and you can go kick rocks all right so these private investigators are on anthony's side so Dan Myers, private investigator, he went to a criminal defense lawyer whose office was located in the same building as his private investigation firm. And the lawyer's name was David Hammond. And he was someone that Dan had worked with before. So Dan tells David all about the latest developments in Anthony's case and that he'd spoken with Anthony. And he wanted David to get his law firm involved in getting Anthony exonerated. And after looking over Anthony's case, David said he was excited to help. So David teamed up with another defense attorney named Melissa K. Swartz, who was with a different firm, but she was well known for her forensic expertise. So separately, they started combing through Anthony's files and they were texting each other back and forth constantly as they just found more and more issues with this case. They couldn't believe. That sounds like you and I. <laughs> I know. They couldn't believe how obvious their arguments for exoneration would be. And together, they filed a motion to vacate Anthony's conviction. 
They pointed out the fact that the conviction was based solely on Alice spotting Anthony on the street five months after her rape and that she'd misidentified him during the lineup. So how could she be so sure that that was the guy on the street when she couldn't even be so sure that that was the guy out of five, you know? Right. The hair analysis was, again, based on a science that by this time, 2021, has been discredited. And they brought up the fact that Anthony had passed two polygraph tests, which that's what it said in the New York Times article. I'm like, were they allowed to present that as evidence for uh, post-relief? Listen, if the judge is having coffee chats with the victim, I think it's the wild, wild west out there. <laughs> Anything goes. That's what I think. It's the wild, so wild don't you west. You'd be worried about your little polygraphs over there. Yeah. They also pointed out the prosecutorial misconduct when the prosecutor told Alice that the man she chose in the lineup was a friend of Anthony's. And the whole thing had been designed by him to trick her into choosing the wrong man, which would obviously have influenced her identification of Anthony at trial. That literally sounds like the worst blind date ever. Oh, yeah. The prosecutor in the case, in, in the case now, he actually spoke with Alice to ask her if those conversations that she wrote about in her memoir were true. And Alice said it had been a long time since she'd written that memoir, but she knew she'd written scenes in the book as she remembered them. So she's saying, at the time, I remembered that happening. Wait, what part? The the two friends that Anthony and this friend are just switching back oh. and forth in all the lineups. But where did she hear that? She said the pro- She said the prosecutor told her that right after the lineup, right after she'd misidentified him. He told her, oh, that guy and that guy are just always switching back and forth. So obviously she's like, yes, I got this is the right guy. The guy they arrested, you know. Right. To David Hammond and literally the rest of the world, as we all heard this unfold, this was an absolute travesty hiding in plain sight. He said it had been 40 years, yet all it took was someone to pick up the trial transcript, talk to Anthony, and read Lucky to see everything wrong. The motion to vacate the conviction was joined by the prosecutor, William Fitzpatrick, who talked about how witness identification is often unreliable. We've already talked about how that increases when you're IDing different races. So this was not, the prosecutor was not trying to stop. He wasn't trying to fight this. Like he was like, yes, I'm with you, which is very helpful (laughs) exoneration. Yeah. On November 22nd, 2021. Oh my gosh. I started writing this script on November 30th. (laughs) I went and checked earlier today. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Because I heard about this immediately and I was like, I want to do it. So on November 22nd, 2021, a hearing was held to determine if Anthony would be exonerated. Fitzpatrick, the prosecutor, said at the hearing... I'm not going to sully these proceedings by saying, I'm sorry. That doesn't cut it. It never should have happened. But it did. And it keeps happening. But it did. And it keeps happening. You're right. You're right. You're about to go be an attorney, aren't you? Uh, No, I looked into it. There's no way. You little public defender, you. Yeah. (laughs) You could be like Sandy Cohen in the OC, surfing during... (laughs) During the day and got my hot me. wife there, like funding my lifestyle. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sounds perfect. And a magic carpet. And a magic carpet and a penthouse suite. That was from our Red Flags mini creep. <laughs> <laughs> 
The judge agreed with the prosecutor, and Anthony Broadwater, who is now 61 years old, was exonerated. When the statement was read, Anthony gasped. He shook with emotion and began to just sob with his head in his hands. He said, I never, ever, ever thought I would see the day that I would be exonerated. And Anthony probably never would have been exonerated without that film producer, Tim Mucciani, and how bothered he was by all those inconsistencies in Alice's memoir. Anthony says he doesn't blame Alice for what happened. He says the system is what is to blame. And the original prosecutor and judge who decided to continue with the case against Anthony even though she identified the wrong person and they had no other evidence. Anthony Broadwater is a very real person. I think we need to remember that these are very real people. He exists. He spent 16 years in prison, another 23 years as a registered sex offender, living in squalor with his wife. He says he thinks that Alice did the best she could in a terrible situation at 18 years old. But he said from a human point of view, He thought it would be nice if she reached out and apologized. (gasps) Oh. And so we were all watching this in real time, you know, and for eight days. And I'm telling you, when I was writing this, she had not said anything. For eight days after Anthony was exonerated, Alice was completely silent. Neither she nor her publisher, Scribner, made any statements addressing this whole situation and originally said they had no plans to update the text of Lucky at that time. I'd already started writing the script, and I was just wondering if Alice was ever going to say anything about it when, on December 1st, she posted a statement on Medium. This is what it said. And I'm just going to read her statement. Mm -hmm. First, I want to say that I am truly sorry to Anthony Broadwater, and I deeply regret what you have been through. I'm sorry most of all for the fact that the life you could have led was unjustly robbed from you, and I know that no apology can change what happened to you and never will. Of the many things I wish for you, I hope most of all that you and your family will be granted the time and privacy to heal. Forty years ago, as a traumatized 18-year-old rape victim, I chose to put my faith in the American legal system. My goal in 1982 was justice, not to perpetuate injustice and certainly not to forever and irreparably alter a young man's life by the very crime that had altered mine. I am grateful that Mr. Broadwater has finally been vindicated, but the fact remains that 40 years ago he became another young black man brutalized by our flawed legal system. I will forever be sorry for what was done to him. Today, American society is starting to acknowledge and address the systemic issues in our judicial system that too often means that justice for some comes at the expense of others. Unfortunately, this was not a debate or even a conversation or even a whisper when I reported my rape in 1981. It has taken me these past eight days to comprehend how this could have happened. I will continue to struggle with the role that I unwittingly played within a system that sent an innocent man to jail. I will also grapple with the fact that my rapist will, in all likelihood, never be known, may have gone on to rape other women, and certainly will never serve the time in prison that Mr. Broadwater did. Throughout my life, I've always tried to act with integrity and to speak from a place of honesty, and so I state here clearly that I will remain sorry for the rest of my life that while pursuing justice through the legal system, my own misfortune resulted in Mr. Broadwater's unfair conviction for which he has served not only 16 years behind bars, but in ways that further serve to wound and stigmatize nearly a full life sentence. 
Wow. Yeah, Alice's statements came with mixed reactions from people. Some figured it was just too little too late. But Anthony, who is the only person whose opinion matters, said, It was very strong and courageous of her to do that. I know that was weighing on her mind. She went through an ordeal, and I went through one too. I mean, I don't know. I don't I don't know what you could say. She I don't know what you could say, you know. Yeah, I don't know that that statement could have been worded any better, but that was like a statement in public media and I, and I think that needed to happen. And I can't imagine, like, she's processing two things, what happened to Anthony, and then also, like she said, the fact that now she has no idea who raped her. She doesn't know if, because she identified the wrong person, that now this person's raped other people. I think that there's that piece. Mm -hmm. But I also think, you know, personal outreach to him. Yeah. I don't know. That's like, but again, I don't know what I would do. I don't know if I would feel so, I don't know. No, I agree. I think she does need to like, and maybe she has, and we don't really need to know that. Maybe she has. I don't know. I I was uh, assuming she didn't from his comment, but I don't know if he. Well, that was eight days. The eight days, I think that she said she had to spend processing this whole thing, um, which I think is fair. I think that's fair. I. A lot of people had issues with her waiting so long, but you can't be prepared to address something like this the day after you find out that you were wrong and ruined somebody's life. Like, I mean, yeah, I don't know. (sighs) Anthony is going to try to get financial restitution from the state. And I was going to say, can she provide some of that? (laughs) Well, yeah, she's, yeah. A lot of people were saying that. (laughs) Yeah, I figured. I mean, like, proceeds of Lucky go to... Yeah. It shouldn't be hard for him to get financial restitution, though. New York has paid out millions of dollars to people that spent less time in prison than Anthony, and he has been completely exonerated. So it should just be a matter of time. Hopefully, fingers crossed. He's also considering filing a federal civil rights lawsuit. His hope for his future involves a vacation with his wife and a farmhouse on a bunch of land. He didn't even want a magic carpet. Just a farmhouse? Just a farmhouse on a bunch of land. He says that would be a nice way to live. Take his wife on vacation, go live on a farmhouse. Until then, Anthony is not doing great. He's in really good spirits, knowing now that everyone knows he's innocent, but he's still living in poverty. He walks with a cane. He needs hip and knee surgeries, which make it hard to find work. Since his exoneration, he's been cleaning houses and looking for discarded appliances to sell. It said in the Times article... You cannot be cleaning houses with bad knees and hips. Someone get this man financial restitution. Let's get him surgery and ship him off to a tropical island. Yeah. He does have a GoFundMe that was set up by a friend of Tim Mucciani, that producer. And we will link it in the show notes. And I'm just saying, you know, maybe if you ever bought a copy of The Lovely Bones or Lucky, consider throwing a couple bucks Anthony's way, you know? Yeah. Scribner has stopped distributing Alice's memoir, Lucky, and they're deciding with Alice if they will revise the book. At this point, I think they just need to pull it, you know. Yeah, oh my gosh. Yeah, and that is a story. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I feel weird about that. Yeah, I... Because I I think there's one bad guy in this story, you know, and he's the one that Mm -hmm. we don't know who he is. But you kind of want 
You don't blame want to blame, Alice. but you don't because you know that she was raped. I mean, there's no dispute in that. No, there's different not, if she yes. made this story up, but she didn't. Would, she went through it a would terrible be thing. Totally different if she had made the whole thing up and then just targeted him. And yeah. that has happened in history before. Mm-hmm. That is not what happened here. And I think people do need to remember that that is not what happened here and that the enemy is all of our enemies. And that is the criminal justice system and the system that allowed this to happen, that allowed somebody a guilty verdict with no evidence, with with a shaky eyewitness and a hair, a pubic hair. I mean, it's crazy that you were sent to jail on that. For 16 yeah. years, and then you had to register as a sex offender for life because of – that's why there has to be evidence. That's why it's so important that we do these studies about the reliability of eyewitness testimony and things like that because you cannot – you cannot center an entire case on one person's story unless there's more corroboration than I know he's the guy that did it because I saw him on the street that day and I recognized him. And I really hate for people that are just at home by themselves or didn't do anything like these, you know, a lack of alibi. It's so hard. Right. Like, Like, yeah, you weren't doing anything. You were just at home. And even if you do have an alibi, you're usually hanging out with someone who's your friend or your romantic partner or family. So they're going to vouch for you. It's not like you're. It just always makes me think of long shot, you know, with the baseball Mm -hmm. game. And how they said if he was watching the game at home, even if he was with people, who would believe them that he was with them? Right. Because they're trying to cover for him is what they would think, you know? And even with a solid alibi, like I was at the baseball game, look at all the hoops they had to go through to get – to get to yes. that point where they're pulling the tape and because the video because the ball game was being recorded. How often is that happening on a TV Never. show? I mean Never. Right. And so and the like, TV show is recording in his section. Yeah. That's a crazy like episode. If y'all want to go listen to the long shot episode, it's a wild story. Oh, yeah. This was this was tough. Ugh. Yeah. Um, I agree. They always are, but you know, I I think I'm not at all getting desensitized to these and I hope I never do but murder sometimes is easier for me I think than rape I don't know if it's because we are female but I mean the people that are getting murdered are typically female unless it's a male because he abused his wife but (laughs) I don't know sometimes these aren't like any better you know like I just just like the book says I mean like you're not lucky and we really right. do have to quit telling people that. Like, you're so lucky to be alive. Like, no. I don't know. I think about that kind of when we talked about, I mean, don't get me started on the September 11th ride again. But I think about when people say, you're so lucky that you survived September 11th. Like, what? Right. You know what I mean? Like, what are we saying to people? Well, you're discrediting their experience by saying that you don't mean it that way you mean yeah. like god you're so lucky you were on a lower floor or right whatever you don't even then man like you're so lucky you experienced the most traumatic thing you'll ever experience in your life in your whole life lucky you you're right. it should be the opposite the person that you're talking to should be saying you're so lucky you weren't there yeah like you're so we're all so lucky we weren't there and mm-hmm. that didn't happen to us like we're the lucky ones yeah We're the lucky ones. And now, 
The moment you've all been waiting for. Oh. Oh, God. I'm so excited. I bumped the mic. So ready. You know why? What? Because these people are famous adjacent. Adjacent. But maybe they're about to be famous adjacent because we might be famous because we've got over 200 patrons. Whoop, whoop. That was the most unenthusiastic whoop I've ever heard. Sorry, I was looking at my brows. <laughs> God. What did you say? If anyone can respect that, it's me. <laughs> <laughs> I said, these people are famous adjacent adjacent. Yes. But they might be famous adjacent soon because we might be famous soon. We got uh, 200 patrons. What? We're moving and grooving. Moving on up. We're almost up to 500 people in the Facebook discussion group. Well, okay. that's exciting. That is really exciting. I got a little picture I'm going to drop in there when we uh, when we get the first. You got some plans? I got just a little something, a little sprinkle, a little something in there I found. But for these people that are famous adjacent adjacent, mm-hmm. major shouts to you. You go first. Okay. Kelsey Chilla. Major shouts, oh. Kelsey Chilla. Is she chilla? Chill. Chill. She's chill. Uh. <laughs> chill. Uh. Chill. Uh. And I love it. Bailey Campbell. Oh, Bailey Campbell. Thank you so much. Byron J. You're I awesome. Like and you have the same name as my dad. So you're cool, double cool. I'm still confused on your dad's name. <laughs> His name is Byron, but he goes by Brett. <laughs> That's really great. And oh, I love this one. Laura DeLuna with cry face emoji. And I don't the, even know. Um, Laura. Phonetically <laughs> spelling. Perfect. Laura. Look, there's Laura's. All right, Laura. 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 I love that. And Jenny Bell. It's a Southern name. I'm oh, sure you'll you get it. it. <laughs> <laughs> then I expect you to say her name in Nancy Grace voice, please. Jenny Bale. <laughs> Jenny Bale. Jenny Bale. Jenny Jenny Bale. Jenny Je- Jenny Bale. Jenny Bale. Bless it's, just your the heart. Indi- it's just the indignation with Nancy, you know? Mm-hmm. Jenny Bale. That's a cute name. Nah. I wish I had a cute name. You, you know? do. Kristen Williams is always such a mouthful. But Jenny Bale, it's adorable. Oh, Jenny Bale. Aww. Oh, Jenny Bell, bless your heart. Thank you so much. Bless your bless all y'all's hearts and thank y'all all so much. And if you have mm. not heard your shout out, we have several on the list. Yes. But it would just take so long. Well, really, we just don't want <laughs> We just want right, to keep guys? it going. We, we just want to keep it going. So if you haven't heard your shout out, it will be on a later episode. So make sure if you have not signed up for your shout out, you will never hear it. So please make sure you sign up. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. We hope that you loved it. If you did, could you please, could you please get on iTunes and give us a five-star rating now. and a review? And get up on there, Spotify. You can't review us on Spotify, but you can rate us five stars if you listen on Spotify. So that's very exciting. Please give us five stars on there too. And you can follow us on the social medias. We are at Creepers Pod, um, basically everywhere we are. Mm-hmm. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Calm down on Twitter. It's been rough. Yeah. <laughs> Look, she tweets more than you think. I never check it. And then I get on there and I'm like, oh, look at this. I got some scrolling to do. The best places to find us are in the Facebook discussion group. We love it in there. And uh, over on the IG, we got some good stuff going. So follow and us on those places. At your local Waffle House. And just stay, uh, stay awesome, everybody. Everybody's awesome. Love you guys. Bye, peeps and creeps. <laughs>